Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of science and spirituality. I'm Astra. I'm Phil. And I'm Penny. And this week, we are going to be talking about epigenetics. It's kind of a deep and very scientific subject, but we hope you find it interesting. Take something away from the episode at the end. But before we do that, we're going to do our What Happened on This Day. It is currently March 25th. 2023. And on this day in 1903, the Times newspaper reported that the French physicist Pierre Curie, assisted by his wife Marie Curie, communicated that the recently discovered element radium, quote, possesses the extraordinary property of continuously emitting heat without combustion, without chemical change of any kind, and without any change to its molecular structure which remains spectroscopically identical after many months of this heat emission. They continue describing this phenomena by stating that, quote, a small tube containing radium, if kept in contact with the skin for some hours, produces an open sore by destroying the epidermis and the true skin beneath. This was a really interesting discovery, especially because it's something emits heat, right? It's typically some kind of chemical reaction, so you would expect a change in the mass of the element, but apparently it didn't happen. And I thought the tube like placed next to your skin was super crazy. Like I didn't realize that it emitted that much heat that could do so much damage. Did they not both die from cancer because of this? Yeah, Mm -hmm. they did. Yeah. Don't try this at home. Tragic, tragic ending to really cool research. So thanks to Cap actually for mentioning this in our discord a long time ago. We're just getting around to it. Epigenetics is a really fascinating topic and it's one that's actually garnered a lot of media attention, especially in recent years. But despite its recent appearance in the popular consciousness, the term and its implications aren't always well understood. So we thought it might be fun to give you a primer. That was a good joke. (laughs) This episode on what epigenetics is all about, how it works, and then how the term is frequently misused, especially in the spiritual community. So I guess I want to start out by asking, what is epigenetics? Like, Fel, you're not your... Kind of a scientist. <laughs> Have you I'm heard this term practice. before, or is it something new to you? Oh, I've for sure heard this term before. Could I tell you what it means? Probably not. The reason I know I've heard this term before is I've definitely I've been on Instagram. I've seen the pop psych people talking about epigenetics. I've seen the New Agers and books talking about epigenetics. They like to say it without explaining what it is. I think I've heard it described as like. The, mem- the memory of DNA or something or like how it's kind of I don't know <laughs> that wasn't a very good description because I know it gets brought up with like generational trauma right yeah so it gets brought up with like generational trauma and how that quote unquote literally affects your DNA or like past lives I've seen it brought up in past lives and how that affects you I don't know or an explanation for past lives that's my very rudimentary understanding of it. Yeah. Hanny, so what is epigenetics? I'll pass it over to you. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a big question. It's essentially, it's a subsection of the science of genetics. So most genetics is the study of DNA, which is the long molecule found in most of our cells. And that encodes all the information that um, are responsible for our cells functioning. So DNA is made up of genes and they vary from person to person. And most genetics focuses on changes to the sequence of the DNA, but epigenetics looks at how its genes are expressed. So I actually think the the idea of it being kind of memory is not terribly far off. 
Um, but what this means is that two people with the same genes, which in theory should have the same phenotype, might have different phenotypes because their epigenetics is different. And yeah, this is, like Fel said, it's used really often in sort of new age communities. People talk about activating your DNA and using epigenetics to activate unlocked and things that are encoded but um, sort of turned off. And I also think that in the scientific community, there is a similar level of hype. And it's one of those kind of very, very like sexy fields, I guess. But it's also fairly new, I would say. So sometimes it's maybe a little bit overstated. I think epigenetics in the scientific field is often like it's oversimplified, right? Because people say, oh, well, we're seeing an increased expression of this because of epigenetics, because of this methylation or acetylation or whatever is happening. Um, When in reality, there's, I think, a lot of reasons like why because your body and your cells are designed to sustain homeostasis and so that turning on and off in genes is not necessarily a linear process it's often very cyclical in nature and i think sometimes it's way oversimplified when we talk about it, even in the scientific community because we haven't really understood it quite as much yet but like the increase in the um, research regarding transcriptomics or the study of the rna genome has been really influential in helping us understand epigenetics better how the turning off and on of these genes by chemical processes of adding a methyl group or other different additions to the DNA leads to expression of these different RNA transcripts, which then leads to different protein expressions and so on and so forth. So it's getting, I think, better understood as like microarrays and other transcriptomics are becoming more popular. But yeah, I definitely think it's too linearized most of the time when I read about it in the scientific community. So there are two things. Before we kind of get into the sort of history of genetics and how epigenetics came about, two things to bear in mind about epigenetics. So the first thing is that they seem to be influenced to an extent by your life experiences. So what this means is, in theory, you can change your DNA, or at least how it's expressed, by what you're exposed to during your life. And the second thing to remember is that these profiles are heritable, just like other genetic changes. So this means that if your parent or grandparent is exposed to something, then you might be experiencing the effects of their lifestyle generations later because of these changes to your DNA. But put a pin in that for now, and I think Fel will introduce you to uh, the history of genetics. So talking about the history of genetics, obviously the vast majority of this history was not on like a, a literal microscopic scale, but definitely more theoretical. One of the earliest examples of like written down or like we have evidence that someone believed this would be that Hippocrates, who believed that certain things were heritable via physical substances like semen or menstrual blood, which, you know, that's pretty, pretty good for being, I mean, you know, we love Hippocrates here. (laughs) He was always a forward thinker. Then there was also Epicurus, who was an Athenian philosopher who has actually quite a a few medical theories, if I remember correctly. And he proposed the idea of both males and females of having hereditary characteristics. Sperm atoms, which is a very accursed phrasing, but, you know, we're going to go with that. Also, fun fact, and this is your Greek fun fact of the day, uh, sperm means bean in Greek. I swear we can't go one episode without mentioning beans. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and then to bring up the other person, that's one of the theories of why Pythagoras didn't like beans is because anyway, so uh, so beans being used in necromancy. Yeah. Is it actually something else? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. Anyway, it's because it's well, sperm means seed, which is bean, but whatever. Anyway, so he kind of noted that after noticing dominant and recessive types of inheritance. And then there's preformation theory, which I think who brought, brought this up here? 
Is that you? Yes. Do you want to talk about it since you you seem to really enjoy it? I think I mean I think it's fantastic too. But yeah, so the preformation theory is this idea that kind of things are predestined, but there's like a physical predestination for. Um, your inheritance. And the, the actual way that this was imagined is really, really fascinating to me. So um, the Greek philosopher Anaxagoras um, initially proposed this. And he had this idea that sperm had was just really tiny people, like really, really tiny humans were um, were present in, in sperm. And then they would eventually uh, develop it much, much larger, but they, w- they would sort of be preformed into their, their individual state. And there are so many diagrams that, because this kind of theory came back in the 17th century or so, of these little sperm people with like little, little, um, like <laughs> tail hats. It is so ridiculous, but I guess it's, it's sort of understandable why they thought this way, because they didn't really know that DNA was a thing at this point. Now, of course, it wasn't just sort of talking about human DNA, but the idea of like breeding plants has been around or animals has been around for forever. I mean, look at dogs, right? Talk about cha- changing their DNA in some way by making them have a traits that are likely to be tamed. Or corn, for example, maize being genetically modified. So we have examples of genetic modification. Of course, I think in some ways plants might be easier to understand because they have such generally the plants that people would be modifying would been much shorter lifespans so you'd be able to see on quite a rapid rapid level how traits were inherited versus not i mean dog breeding has been around for forever that the idea of like training certain traits out of a dog uh, obviously didn't necessarily understand how this was they understood maybe a little bit how it was influenced but not the again microscopic view uh, so then there was Al Jahiz who documented the heritability of genetic disease, uh, hemophilia. And he was actually one of the earliest scholars to introduce the concept of natural selection a thousand years before Darwin's theory of evolution, which is kind of crazy. So he again suggested the idea that the environment exerts some kind of pressure on animals. So, man, good for him. But it was ultimately, I think, generally that either. Your life influences or what determined your traits or the stars is a big one. I have this great, I'm looking over because someone just gave it to me. They were like, I thought of you. And I was like, I'm so glad I'm at this level with this person. They gave me the most cursed 19th century astrology book that I've ever seen. Uh, And it tells you what you're going to look like based on you know what sign you were born in and like where specifically the sign was and like what degree it was in and likely what traits you're going to have and what life you're going to lead everyone looks horrifying so <laughs> that's does, does this book have like a lot of drawings of people yeah. I think I know exactly what book it is because I was actually talking to an Arabic astrologer friend of mine who uh, had something very similar to that and it's always talking about the ascendant and it's with, with the degree of your ascendant and a specific sign influences like how tall you are, how like skinny fat, do you have a long nose, like the color of your hair, I mean, all of these things. It was super crazy how specific it got. I wonder if it's ever accurate. I would love to see. <laughs> I know you squint, you're like, maybe I can see it. But yes, yeah, so, I mean, the stars were definitely a, a very real thing in determining what your traits were going to be, even just physically, as well as just fate, whether that was like your overall, however that culture defined fate. Hen, do you want to talk about the science of genetics? Yeah, so I'd say that the science of genetics really started to pick up sort of 17th and 18th centuries. So one of the first people who performed pioneering experiments in genetics, but actually wasn't recognized until much later, was Gregor Mendel. 
And you probably are aware of his studies from your sort of high school science class. The idea is that he was able to cross pea plants with one another. And he demonstrated that traits which were present in former generations were passed down. But not only that, that traits that seemed to be lost would be would be picked up later. And this is because these traits were recessive. So when you cross uh, across generations, you're able to recombine two recessive alleles. And because they're uh, there's no dominant allele kind of getting in the way, they kind of reappear in the in the generation. So he, he was really instrumental in suggesting that there's this idea of d- dominance inheritance across generations. Then we also had kind of developments in microscopy. So uh, Van Leeuwenhoek, somebody who I always mistake for Robert Hooke, but <laughs> basically he was looking into cell theory and he looked at sperm under a microscope. Don't think about what he was doing with a microscope for a second there. Um, but if you think about this uh, preformation theory, which was kind of, kind of becoming more popular at the time, he was somewhat surprised that he didn't see tiny people under the microscope. But he did see something that was motile and therefore could be responsible for heritable traits. So this was kind of a, a suggestion that there might be kind of something there. Apparently in 67... Seven, uh, Leeuwenhoek reported his research on the coffee bean. After roasting and cutting it open, he noticed a spongy interior that when pressed released oil. He boiled yeah, it with rainwater he was, twice. And... He was obsessed with the microscope and he had his own special version of it. So outside of using it to look at sperm, and he also took a coffee bean and he cut it in half and he looked at it under the microscope and noticed it was kind of spongy inside. It was porous, right? And so then he pressed it together and he noticed oil. And so he put that into a coffee cup, like into a cup of water and essentially brewed the first like very crude cup of coffee which I thought was crazy that is super cool but like I'm also surprised that coffee had not been invented in the countries in which coffee grows I'm gonna look into this I I don't know like I'm not an expert in the history of coffee but I just found it super interesting that he like saw it under a microscope and was like "Hmm, what happens if I put it in water so this is really at this time this is where the classic nature versus nurture debate comes to the forefront As we mentioned, although an understanding of heritability existed for thousands of years, this idea of epigenesis or where you have undifferentiated cells that then differentiate into somatic cells of specific tissues was an enduring one. It really became popular again after the like around the 19th century. It was also actually popular before the 17th century as well. However, at that point, like 17th to 19th century, the preformation per formation theory became super popular and epigenesis kind of went to the side but it came back in the 19th century and it was still widely considered that life factors predominated over one's development even with this shift in theories the key figure in this was Lamarck for who something called Lamarckism is named essentially Lamarckism proposed the idea that once parents can pass down traits that have been gained over their lifetime to their progeny. So the most famous example of this that I've heard is his example of the blacksmith. So the father is this really strong blacksmith with large muscles, a quote unquote favorable trait. And then that is then passed down to the son or the daughters who would also have large muscles and be really strong. And Lamarck's perspective encompassed a very linear evolution of kind of this favorable nature that would pass down from parent to child. Um, Again, this idea of adaptation to environment, right? So if a parent in a particular environment started expressing certain traits to enhance their survivability, that would then also be passed down to their children. His idea is actually very simple. This idea of like simple, simple organism to a really complex evolution was something that was actually influenced by alchemy. So Lamarck held to a pretty traditional alchemical view of the elements. 
influenced primarily by the movements of earth, air, fire, and water amongst matter. And he essentially asserted that once living organisms form, the movements of fluids, I couldn't quite tell what if fluids was like actual water fluid or if it was more of a kind of energetic fluid nature. That hasn't really been super clear. But the movement of these fluids naturally drove the simple organisms to evolve to greater levels of complexity. Essentially, in Lamarckism, the simple organisms never disappeared because they were created by spontaneous generation, which is actually an idea that was disproved by our friend Louis Pasteur. But this spontaneous generation then led to a kind of steady state biology, and there was always simple available to become complex due to the involvement of the elemental complexifying forces, which he called the principles of alchemy that led to this differentiation and greater complexity. Mark was um, kind of instrumental in this idea that he was kind of bringing back the idea of epigenesis, right? That, that the life exposures are really what determine your, your traits and also the traits of your offspring. And his ideas were actually kind of hijacked by people who took those ideas even further later on. They call these sort of neo-Lamarckists. But this idea of a Lamarckian evolution, which was very much environment-based, was challenged by Darwin. So Darwinian evolution is different because um, it's based on natural selection. So the idea is that in a population, the variation that happens is random. You, the changes to your DNA are not happening in response to your environment. So instead of the environment causing changes, it selects for changes which are inherited. So like say you've got a giraffe that has a shorter neck. That giraffe is not going to be able to reach food and it's going to die. But you're still having DNA itself. The variation is, is random. It's not like there's a direct force that is causing the giraffe to change, like it's not getting taller or anything like that. And this kind of started to be broad, more broadly accepted around the sort of 1860 or so is when Origin of Species came out. Although there was still quite a lot of active debate about how relevant this was, because as Fel mentioned, it's somewhat difficult to prove things that happen over really long generations. So what Darwin did is he actually used a lot of um, linguistic models, which I thought was interesting. So he actually used the, the evolution of language to kind of prove his point. This was also a trigger for the sort of Victorian obsession with eugenics. Um, I thought maybe it might be interesting to talk about that with Fell if you have any insight. But yeah, because people believed that um, a natural selection was a thing, they would then use that to sort of prove, quote, racial nonsense. Yeah, I mean, they were obsessed with that. I mean, if you look at science books, even from like the 1940s, they talk about race in this really gross, weird, eugenics-y way. And it's it's unfortunately still a, a belief that's, that's definitely out there. Um, I don't know if I have any particular insights on it at that time period. I mean, I know the Victorians also used this as a catalyst for like some weird genetic experience or experiments the everyone everyone in the victoria we should do an episode on victorian parlor magic sometime because it's we fucking should. weird obviously that's not parlor magic but it was just kind of this whole new study and you know the study primarily being led by wealthy white men obviously um they were using it to bolster themselves yeah like one example is um francis galton so galton is Unfortunately, he did make very seminal contributions to the field of genetics, but he was also a eugenicist. And unfortunately, because some of his science was good and useful, his eugenics uh, theories have also been used to kind of bolster uh, white supremacist views. But 
not all of his ideas are equally useful. So I guess it's just kind of important to consider like the climate of the time. Their personal views actually very much influence their science in somewhat of a negative way. But yeah, we also had around this time, we had germplasm experiments, which started to prove that germ cells, so your sperm and egg, are what are really responsible for inheritance. And importantly, the experiment suggested that changes to your somatic cells, so that, you know, that would be like your muscle cells or your skin cells, that cells that are not your sperm and your egg, those are not going to be inherited by your offspring. So this was kind of another sort of win for um, Darwinian evolution, because it's this idea that stuff that happens to your uh, physical body is not going to be passed on because it doesn't affect your germ cells. Does that make sense? Yeah. It was, and the way this was actually, this, the way this experiment was done was that Wiseman, who was kind of the person who was the proponent of the germplasm theory, he took rats and he cut off their tails and then he did it multiple times over different generations. And the idea was that if Lamarck's theory was correct and you cut off the tail of a rat, then theoretically that feature, that phenotypic feature should be passed from parent to child, right? But it wasn't. And despite multiple generations of cutting off the tail, it always regrew which led to this theory that maybe it wasn't a somatic cell-specific heritable trait, but really more based upon the germ cells, which physical alteration, like cutting off a rat's tail, would have no impact on. So then, of course, we get to the discovery of DNA itself. Um, So up to this point, we we knew that there was something that was responsible for heritability, but we only really knew that it was confined to the uh, germ cells. It may surprise you to hear that DNA was actually discovered all the way back in 1860. So that was a year after The Origin of Species was published. But Darwin's works actually made no reference to this. And they also didn't reference Gregor Mendel because he wasn't terribly well known at the time. It was later that his stuff was rediscovered. DNA was discovered in 1860, but its actual um, physical tertiary structure wasn't resolved until much, much later. Yeah, 1953. So it took a really, really long time for us to actually understand the um, physical characteristics of DNA. Now we knew that DNA existed and that it was present in the nucleus, we could use it to prove that it was responsible for physical traits. So these these experiments were conducted in streptococci, which are a type of bacteria. And this they had this um, these two different strains, this rough and the smooth strain. And one of them was more virulent than the other, I think. And basically what they did is they isolated the DNA and they were able to transform it into another strain. And when they basically transformed the DNA into the other strain, it gained the virulence. So they were able to prove that this material which was rich in phosphates, which characteristic of DNA, was the thing that was responsible for the change in the virulence. This was in 1944. So this is when we started to really understand that it was this substance that was responsible for inheritance. Yeah, because before that, the theory was that proteins were actually responsible for your inheritance of traits. And the reason why people thought that is because DNA at the time was only had the four base pairs, right? The adenine, the thymine, the cysteine, and the guanine. They were like only four bases. There's certainly no way that this can be responsible for such a wide range of phenotypic characteristics that people have. Um, And instead, proteins, which have many different types of amino acids, is a much larger subset of this like base base building block, I guess you could say. You're like, well, certainly then proteins, more complicated mechanism are definitely the ones responsible for such a wide variety of traits. But yeah, it was at this point that we would determine that DNA was actually the substance responsible for the expression of your genes and then the phenotypic traits associated with them. It was a huge turning point in the scientific community at the time because like people were really solid on the whole protein theory until this happened. So if we kind of go back to our ancient theories, we sort of have this preformation idea, everything's predestined, and epigenesis, oh, it's all life factors. 
And all the evidence at this point was was really pointing towards um, preformation, like all the information was in the DNA. And Darwinian evolution suggested that you don't have direct changes to the DNA from the environment. So it's it was kind of all pointing more in the kind of preformation direction, if we can simplify it that much. But molecular genetics at this point was able to challenge Darwin's notion that the environment cannot directly alter heritable traits. So how did this happen? Well, firstly, we have population genetics experiments that show life exposure can influence inherited traits, and that's diff- that's separate from their gene sequence. So one example is that if your parents or grandparents smoke, then you will be at higher risk of things like asthma and um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. That's uh, irrelevant of whether you smoke or not, and it's not linked to the genetics. It's some kind of change that was affected by the uh, the smoking itself. And later on, um, actually looking at the uh, physical structure of the DNA, they found out this was due to epigenetic changes. Another really classic example is the Dutch hunger winter. So I think this was just after World War II. There was um, a short one-year famine in the Netherlands, and the famine actually led the grandchildren of the people who experienced the famine to experience higher risks of obesity, cardiovascular disease, and high blood pressure. And it was sort of a, a natural experiment, if you like. So just one year of this exposure led to these really drastic health changes. And again, it was unrelated to the actual genetics. But when they looked at the epigenetics, they could see that genes related to development and metabolism, and specifically insulin growth factor, had epigenetic changes. So this was a kind of a seminal thing because it showed, yeah, life experiences actually can change your DNA and also the characteristics of your offspring. Yeah, and I think it's important for us to make a note here that, like, when we talk about um, epigenetics and changes being made to your DNA, it's not literally changes of, like, the physical structure um, of, like, the bases and even of the DNA itself. It's usually an addition. So, for example, you could take a methyl group, which is just a carbon plus some hydrogens, and if you put it onto adenine, I think is the one that's methylated, one of the most common out of the four bases. It's cytosine. Thank you. Okay. Cytosine, thank you. Then it essentially makes it harder to access for the proteins that do the transcribing, which then turns the gene, quote-unquote, off. There's different ways in which that happens. There's methylation, there's acetylation, and even others. And it's not always also just the DNA, too. For example, I think we get into this a little bit later, but there are things called histone proteins that can also be modified that also have an impact on whether genes are turned on and off. So how does epigenetics actually work? Before we can explain that, we actually need to explain molecular genetics a little bit. I'm not going to get too detailed, so just bear with me. How does information in our DNA affect our physical cells? In other words, how does our genotype or our genes influence our phenotype, what you actually see, the physical characteristics of somebody? So DNA is a molecule that is found in almost every cell in our body. It's a long string or sequence of repeated chemicals known as bases, which you mentioned earlier. This sequence provides the code for everything in our body. But it's important to understand that not all of our DNA is actually expressed. The parts important to our physiology are genes. But there's also something called non-coding DNA, which also plays an important role, but we'll ignore that for the sake of this episode. We keep talking about something called expression. And what we mean by that is that the DNA code is first transcribed into mRNA, an intermediate chemical. Um, If you've been listening to talk about the COVID vaccine, you're probably familiar with this idea of an mRNA vaccine. So that's after this DNA has been transcribed, you have mRNA. That's what's been in the vaccine we'd be getting if you had COVID. The mRNA is then taken and is translated into proteins by the ribosome. These proteins are the backbone of all of our cellular processes. They make us who we are. They're essential for bodily processes, like we have digestive enzymes, those are proteins. 
They affect our appearance, uh, making different pigments in our hair and our eyes. They're quite literally the machines that like keep us alive and ticking. The process of the DNA gene information turning into a physical function by the use of proteins is called gene expression. Genes are inherited and they code for proteins. So when we inherit DNA from our parents, the genes in that DNA allow our bodies to perform different physical functions. And variation in the DNA code means that the proteins we possess might differ which is what underlines the physical differences we see between individuals. So that's all very well and good. But why do we have epigenetics then? Why do we, why do we need these, um, these regulation of gene expression? Well, if you think about, for example, the human genome, it has around 25,000 genes that code for proteins. One gene might even code for multiple types of proteins. So the actual number is much higher. So the idea is there are a lot of proteins and expressing these all at the time would be a lot of energy. It would be resource intensive. It would be chaotic because some of those things might interact with one another. So we might only need a protein in like a particular cell or for a really short process or during a certain stage of development. Imagine if you had like a huge library of books, you wouldn't read them all at once, right? So if you imagine like a neuron, that's going to have a different gene expression to a red blood cell because those cells are physically different, but the DNA inside them is exactly the same. So to actually control the gene expression, the access to the DNA is tightly controlled. So you can switch genes on or off and only allowed genes will be transcribed and translated. And this happens because DNA is packaged in chromosomes, which are tightly woven around histones, as Astra mentioned earlier. DNA is wrapped up really tightly around these histones. And this means that the transcription can't actually happen because the enzymes that do it can't get in there. Like it's, it's so tightly wrapped. If you imagine wrapping like a tape measure around your finger, you can't read the stuff on the tape measure, right? It's a similar concept. So when we need to turn the gene on, we can unwind it when we need it. And because the transcription enzymes can actually come and bind then, that allows the gene to be expressed. So the process of DNA winding and unwinding is called chromatin remodeling, and it gives us control over gene expression. Epigenetics helps us to control this chromatin remodeling. The basis, the sequence of the DNA doesn't change, but like Astra mentioned earlier, there might be a methyl group which can affect how tightly that DNA is wound or wrapped around the histone, and therefore it affects whether the genes turned on or off. So what this means is that two cells can have exactly the same genes, but because of the epigenetic modifications, the actual physical characteristics are very different. So why has epigenetics made such a big splash? I think the one, a couple of the big reasons are because it challenges a lot of the previous assumptions about DNA not being influenced by the environment. The idea of lifestyle being heritable and influencing more than just, um, I think, your physical body, but like going deeper, brings back this Lamarckian idea that we talked about earlier on. There's a really interesting intersection between epigenetics and the science of memory. It's something that we should actually probably make a whole episode about. Um, yeah, Hanny, I saw you mentioned that, and I agree. It'd be super interesting because there's a lot of evidence that epigenetics has a huge correlation with our ability to remember things. It's super interesting. But why do you also think this is so popular in the spiritual wellness slash alternative health communities? Like, why do you think it's such a big topic of conversation? I mean, I think it's it's like evidence for that collective unconscious. I mean, we even mentioned epigenetics. At least I think we did. It was in our notes for the shadow work episode way back when. You know, it's kind of people see it as validating their more woo-woo ideas. It could even validate reincarnation or past lives in some degree I've seen it thrown around in books like that it's weird though because I feel like it takes away agency in some degree if if you fully believe that like lifestyle is nature and not nurture 
I don't know. It's very, it's interesting. Like, it makes sense that it does. But on, on the other hand, I'm just like, hmm, interesting choice. Yeah, the way I described it in the episode outline, which is probably a little bit uncharitable, is the secret, but for nucleotides. <laughs> um, because it is, isn't it, really? It's just like, it's this idea, like, you can change anything. Like, your destiny is not written into your genes. and Or, like, you can activate whatever's in your DNA by just doing this thing in your life. And whatever you do is accessible to you now. So it's, it's, like, it's like a pseudoscientific explanation for these things. And I have actually heard this a lot for meditation in particular. There are some small studies suggesting that meditation might lead to epigenetic changes, but they're, they're so small, they're not really appropriately powered. I don't think that we can really say that there is like a long-term heritable, like cross-generational effect of meditation for your offspring, for example. I just don't think we have the evidence to say that. That's not to say that it doesn't, that's it not true, but it's not well evidenced at this point. So yeah, is this like this idea that we can, we don't need like a spiritual reason for something. We can have like a physical real reason for, you know, tangible reason for a spiritual practice having effect. And with the meditation, there's certainly not been any studies, at least to my knowledge about like how much you would need to meditate in order for it to actually have like a profound epigenetic impact. Like is five minutes a day enough or does it need to be do we need to do like Buddhist monk levels of meditation in order for it to have like an epigenetic change? And certainly I don't think there's been any studies done, at least from what I could find about the hereditary um, transfer of that from generation to generation. So yeah, the, the idea of epigenetics and meditation, I think is certainly something propagated by new age spirituality, which has very little evidence uh, standing behind it. Oh yeah. What do you think? Okay. This is also something that we hear in the communities. What do you think about this idea of ancestral trauma? I think this really comes back to this Dutch hunger thing, that, which is like one of the seminal studies in epigenetics. Like if you just Google epigenetics, Dutch hunger winter, then a lot of evidence will come from there. And I think people kind of see this and they're like, oh, these people went through a very traumatic experience. They had real demonstrable epigenetic changes and effects on their health. Therefore, this applies to all kinds of trauma. But... I don't know that it's necessarily as simple as that. I think it's, for some people, it's quite nice and uh, reassuring to, to have, like, again, like a physical thing that um, ancestral trauma can be based on. But realistically, trauma is, like, really complex and multifaceted and there are social factors and, you know, things like cycles of poverty and uh, it's, it's much more than just genes. And so I think there's maybe an excessive focus on epigenetics to the exclusion of a lot of evidence. But, I mean, I think you looked into the evidence, didn't you, Astra, about this? Yeah, I did look at some. Um, I am curious, though. So with the Dutch winter famine, um, where they tested the epigenetics of the people after the year after the famine, did they ever do with like a follow up test where they actually looked at the epigenetic profiles, maybe a couple years out, like from the famine? Did it, did it essentially revert itself? Right? Because epigenetics isn't always necessarily a permanent alteration. Um, it can be turned on and off as needed. So for example, if there's no longer a need to, for example, conserve energy or food, do we see like a demethyl demethylation of these histone proteins or other th um, your DNA that then kind of reverts this epigenetic profile? Did they look at that? Do you know? No, I'm not actually sure. I think I would need to read up on it. But I think the idea was that these changes were seen in the offsprings and the grandchildren. So it was definitely a heritable thing. But I don't know, like, could we look at, say, the progeny of these grandchildren and ask if they are still experiencing these changes? Like how many generations does it take to revert that? I think probably there are data out there, but I haven't looked. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Totally fair. I was just, yeah, I was curious. So what is also the evidence of for the heritability of trauma? 
There's been some meta-analysis studies that suggest exposure to prior trauma, particularly early life stresses, interacts with stress-sensitive genotypes or genes through some long-lasting DNA methylation changes. Specifically, they were looking at the FKBP5 gene, which is related to stress responsiveness. And there was some correlation, but it's not really super profound. And it's more of a kind of theoretical correlation more than it's like a very specific, absolutely like, yes, this is exactly what happens. And a lot of the epigenetic studies, sounds like at least for right now, relating to PTSD and trauma are using something called genome-wide association studies to identify the loci that have association with PTSD. But there's a lot of focus around identifying those genes that are associated with that kind of response, that trauma response. But it doesn't seem like a lot of research has been done on the heritability of PTSD specifically, um, to my understanding with papers that I read. There's a lot of theories about long-term methylation and acetylation specifically relating to these genes. Um, but they haven't done some any like extensive profiling of the epigenetics of people who, like uh, the progeny of people who have experienced severe trauma, especially earlier in life. So it would be interesting to, to see more research in that field. I am curious to see what kind of their responses are, especially once they can identify the stress response genes and we know kind of this is the general area to be looking in. It'll be much easier to do a larger scale like metagenomic analysis. Um, and look at the alterations of the DNA to see what changes have been made. I think, like, long story short, trauma is complex and multifaceted, and we shouldn't just rely on genetics to explain it, because it's it, to the exclusion of everything else, because it's so, so complex, and it's going to be probably a little bit different for every individual. I think you have an interesting note in the show notes about the idea of karma being influenced epigenetically. You make a comment about how you don't think it's really a thing. Do you want to explain why? Yeah, so again, I was just searching through Instagram, seeing for mentions of epigenetics. We can talk about those soon. Um, but one of the things I saw was um, the idea that karma, which is obviously common in like Vedic religions, is mediated through your epigenetics. So, okay, you can in- inherit through generations because, you know, there are changes to your, your parents or grandparents. But this doesn't make sense to me because... When you reincarnate, you don't take your your body with you, as far as I'm aware. Like you don't take your DNA with you. So, how would this possibly be a mechanism? It it just again seems like someone's trying to take two different concepts and shoehorn them together when they just don't make sense. Yeah, I think you also have the same issue with the past life argument, right? This idea that your past lives also you can inherit the epigenetics from your past life, which like makes you afraid of heights or whatever, right? Like if you died in your past life, now you're afraid of heights. But again, as I said, yeah, unless you're actually taking your physical body and your DNA with you, that's really not possible because epigenetics is not a spiritual thing so much as it is a physical um, modification of your DNA. Because I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense either. I wish I could pull up that Instagram mail that you posted handy and play it because it was wild. The things they said were just insane. Oh, I've seen lots. There were things saying, um, oh, you can reprogram your DNA with sound or um, science is proving that our body's ability to heal and repair itself is greatly affected by our beliefs, thoughts, emotions, and intentions. They have a profound vibrational effect on our continually evolving genetic code. DNA activation is our software upgrade. I just, no. I'm stopping there because that is nonsense. Please don't believe this. It's really popular on spiritual Instagram. Please don't pay attention to this nonsense. So when people talk about like subliminals, is that like an epigenetics thing as well? Oh gosh. Well, you know, if anyone's ever wanted to look like Ariana Grande, there is a subliminal on YouTube. So there's that. 
That's you were so thinking about the using sound and vibration to make like epigenetic changes. And again, it's this assumption that sound and vibration can just like enter into your skin or body and actually impact your DNA, which is not true. <laughs> if you are curious why we did, I think a vibrations episode like a long time ago, it was probably season one or season two, where we talk about like how this is impossible. Um, so definitely can't be over here just like willy nilly changing your DNA. Um, that's not how that works. But the other thing too, and one of the things we posted at the end was this person talking about how twins have the same genetic makeup and epigenetics and how the epigenetics was responsible for why they had the same religious inclinations and like why they would pray and why they would do all these different religious acts. And there was some really crazy stretching of epigenetic evidence to show that this was the reason why people were drawn to religion. It reminded me a lot of our um, God gene episode where people are trying to identify a genetic reason as to why people are always seemingly drawn towards some kind of religion or assimilation with divinity. Yeah, I mean, just personally, I think it's much more likely that life factors are going to be involved, unless this is like a twin study where they're like, separated from one another you know and they don't have the same upbringing and things like that it just it excludes things that are much more plausible in my opinion mm-hmm. just thinking about this sound thing as well like not to be crude about this but obviously if you're thinking about changes that are heritable those need to be in your germ cells as we've discussed so that would mean that you would essentially need to aim the sound at your genitals in order for that those changes to take effect right because the the you're, dna you're would need here to change. first folks <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like because you know there are d- things like radiation which can affect our dna um for example like solar radiation can affect your dna and your skin cells and that's how you get melanoma but if you know if sound around us was changing our dna that would be actually quite concerning um because it would cause like things like cancers and um various health issues for us yeah that's interesting mm, that's a good point next time i see someone say that sound activating or changing your dna i'm gonna be like man because it's like obvious, I mean, we talked about this in our vibrations episode, but like obviously vibration on like a literal level can affect you, but like not on that level, like not fundamentally changing your DNA. Yeah. And you'd have to, you know, it'd have to change like every cell in your body, for example. So unless it was in the gonads of your parents and then it was inherited so what like you then have to meditate uh and then okay uh have a baby yeah. and then <laughs> then your baby has epigenetic changes no, no, like no. you you ask for project back in time honey. oh of course yes and then you project the sound at your parents various parts <laughs> and then when you come back in the future you will look like ariana grande that's right here folks around. that's how you do it follow our instructions <laughs> to the t and you will look like Ariana Grande. <laughs> so what do you think? I guess final thoughts. Is it possible to magically change our epigenetics to like make ourselves better, more favorable, more likely to survive? What do you think? I think we're all on the same page here, but you have to say it for it to be true. Yeah. My takeaway is just go outside and like go to therapy. It probably help you more than whatever, whatever trying to mess with epigenetics will do. Yeah, I think it's like there there are things that are good and beneficial for you, and maybe that good beneficial for your offspring, like quitting smoking or having a regular meditation practice. Like those things can be beneficial to you and your spiritual practice in some cases, but we don't need genetics to explain that. 
And I think it actually will be interesting to see whether there are things like um, uh, epigenetic changes from from meditation. I suspect that changes might occur due to lower stress levels because obviously stress is something that can affect us biologically to an extent. But I just don't think that we have enough evidence to support the like really wild claims that are being made. So the takeaway from this episode for me would be please read everything about this with extreme caution and think about how this is actually going to work because a lot of the time the um, explanations behind it just don't add up. Yeah, I think for me, it's usually a matter of most of these things that we do that are beneficial, like meditation, create physical changes. And those physical changes will lead to downstream effects that might have an epigenetic effect. Sure, but it's not a matter of the spiritual practice so much as it is the result of what it does to us physiologically. Um, Much like you were saying, Annie, I actually agree a lot with that. I also think that this attempt to try and connect like epigenetics with spirituality is, again, this idea of trying to marry science and spirituality into one and to provide an explanation as to, like, the legitimization of a spiritual practice. But again, I think we've said this a couple of times in the podcast where, yes, the intersection of science and spirituality is certainly a thing, but not it shouldn't be forced, right? And in this instance, I think it's trying to be forced way more than it should be, when in reality, we can certainly just say these spiritual practices have a, like, even just even just a psychological, even if it's placebo, it doesn't matter. It can still have a really positive effect in your life without having to be validated by scientific proof. I am really curious to see generally where the epigenetic research goes. I think it's a really interesting field to study. I kind of wish I had gone into it instead of protein science. <laughs> Too late to change. I mean, I'm here in genomics. I'm like, maybe I should have done protein so. <laughs> We'll just, we'll just like go off of each other like we already do for our questions. But yeah, super interesting field. I and mean, if you are curious about it, there's a couple of review articles I think we have in our show notes that we'll include below that you can read, both on epigenetics and the kind of the history of DNA. Also, there's a book. Okay, it's too far away. I can't see it on my bookshelf. Um, that I will also link below in the show notes for you to read if you're really curious about learning about the history of DNA, how it came to be, and how it affects us. But I think that's it. Yay. Good job, everybody. We'll try and do more spirituality next week. Sorry about this sort of little little detour, but we hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, this was really science heavy, but like it was asked for. And it's it's interesting stuff, really. And I had a fast I love talking about it. I think it's really fascinating. Um, so hopefully you enjoyed it too. If you have questions, you can always ping us and ask us in the Discord. We are usually fairly responsive in there. So feel free to ping us if you have questions. Um, also follow us on Instagram if you don't already. We post hints and snippets of upcoming episodes. And then All right. Thanks for listening. Have a good day and we'll see you later.